Psalm chapter 40, if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Psalm chapter 40 this morning. This psalm is a psalm of petition by David. Uh, David is the king of Israel, and he's writing a song of petition. Uh, it seems to come from a particular crisis, but we don't know which one. Um, so it's kind of a personal hymn, but it's also not just a personal hymn. If you notice right at the very beginning, it says to the congregation. This was meant to be sung communally. It was meant to be sung by everyone together. And even though there's a lot of I and me in this hymn, uh, in fact, there's 34 times first-person pronouns are used, only two of them are plural. It's almost always I or me. Uh, even though he's, say, he's writing this from his own perspective, it's also something that is meant to be sung because all of us have this sort of perspective at one time or another. But what is so striking about this psalm and the reason that we talk about it in our series on the Messianic Psalms is that the Messiah shines through this psalm, but he's especially uh, visible. It's especially clear in verses 6 through 10. So rather than going through the entire psalm and brushing through a whole bunch of stuff and missing a whole lot, we're going to focus just on verses 6 through 10. So stand with me as we read from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 10. This is God's word. If you let it, it will change your life. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written to me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Pray with me. Father, just as we see Messiah in these verses, may we be shaped into his image by your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm, I just said, is a psalm of petition from David. But it almost looks like David is writing kind of outside of himself, especially when you look at these verses. These verses don't just apply to David. They apply it to, to one after David. And in fact, David is kind of speaking as a representative of all of Israel. And who, who, may I ask, is the primary representative, the representative, capital R, of all of the believing community, all of the community of faith? Well, it's our Messiah, of course. And so David is writing as a representative of Israel, but he's also writing as, as though he is Messiah speaking. And so much of the psalm are things that, he, that the Messiah can say to the, to, the, to the utmost that David can only say is true a bit. God, it's, it's like David is saying, this is true of me, but it's even more true of someone after me. Now, I don't know that he knows that completely as he's writing these words. I think he's writing stuff down and he's realizing that God... God in his providence is directing him to write these things. But I don't know if he knows exactly what's to come. I don't know if he realizes that Messiah is going to suffer and die on a cross and rise from the dead. I don't know if he knows the details, but I know he's looking forward to someone beyond himself. 
That's why in verse 1 he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Because, I mean, what else can you do? You can't save you, right? You can't save you. I mean, think about it. If you're drowning, who that's drowning is going to save themselves? You can't save yourself. You're drowning. You're hopeless. We, in our sins, are hopelessly drowning. And so if there's going to be a rescue, it's got to come from someone beyond us. It's got to come from God himself. It can't come from me, so I have to wait patiently for the Lord. Not only is he waiting patiently from the Lord, he, he is, uh, verse 2, rescued from the pit of destruction. The language, it mirrors the idea of the grave, of Sheol, of death. But he's rescued from it. He says in verse 6, uh, uh, and then again in 9 and 10, he talks about how he's proclaiming the works and the thoughts of God toward his people. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail in just a minute. He, verse 8, he delights to do the will of God. We're going to look at that more in just a minute. He keeps the law of God in his heart. In verse 11, he talks about being preserved by God's love and his faithfulness. In verse 12, he is surrounded by evil. And in 14, his life is in danger because of the evil ones that surround him. But he relies on God for his, for his rescue. Now, we, we don't often think of the Messiah as being rescued. Perhaps he's, in a sense, being rescued, but it's not just his rescue. It's our rescue. And so what we have here in this psalm is, is this, this connection between the king connecting with his people, all being able to praise this praise, but also looking forward to a Messiah who will connect in his people in the same kind of representative way. In other words, we can look at the Messiah and we see the representation of who we are to be, and the representation of what God has done in us. And that's where I want to focus. And, and verses 6 through 10 really play this out well. Look at verse 6 with me. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering, you have not required. Now, here's the thing. They are under a, a set of laws, of, of uh, religious laws in Israel, in which... They have to, time after time, year after year, keep providing sacrifices. The idea of the sacrifice is, without the shedding of blood, Leviticus tells us, there is no remission of sin. So we know that sin cannot be atoned without the shedding of blood. So there is a sacrificial system in place. God has put it in place. But you have to realize that when God put it in place, he is putting into place something that is not sufficient for salvation from sin. If he wanted it to be sufficient, it would need to be sufficient once and for all. It would need to be a permanent rescue. So let's go back to the guy drowning. If, if a guy is drowning and you're going to go rescue him, you have to rescue him permanently. In other words, if he's still drowning after you rescue him, you haven't rescued him, right? Here, I'm going to get you out of 40 feet of water and put you in 10 feet of water, and now I've rescued you. No, that doesn't work. you got to get them on the shore, right? you got to get them completely out of the danger. And so what we need, when we're talking about our sin, we have a need for a rescuer to come and rescue us completely from sin. It cannot be partial. It cannot be incomplete. It cannot be most of the way there. It cannot be enough that we could stand up and, and be all right on our own, we have to be rescued completely. Jesus is that complete rescue. The writer of Hebrews talks about it. We just read a minute ago from Hebrews chapter 10. Look, look carefully at verses 1 through 4. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are near. The law is a shadow. So you take the light of God and you shine it upon Jesus Christ, the shadow that he casts is the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. They are a shadow. They are the silhouette of the Messiah. They are not the Messiah. They are not the means of our saving. But they point us toward it. They give us an idea of what it's like. They give us a shadow. But Christ is the reality. So he says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be? If, if one sacrifice was sufficient, why do it every year? It wasn't sufficient, y'all. Now, he was looking forward to a sacrifice. If you will, it was, well, it was passing a temporary budget resolution to avoid a government shutdown. That's what it was doing. It was kicking the can down the road. That's what it was doing. It wasn't dealing with the problem. It was just trying to give us more time so that the problem could be dealt with, right? That's the idea of these sacrifices. Now, they are helpful because, because they, they bring us to a place of repentance before God, but they are not sufficient in and of themselves. Look, look back at Psalm 46. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. What he's saying is, look, if, 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 if you think that the ritual and just the means of offering the sacrifice is enough, that's not enough. That's not what God requires. It's a band-aid. It's not the permanent fix. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. All these sacrifices do is remind you how much you need a Savior. But now there's one sacrifice that doesn't remind us of sins, but actually takes them away. It is impossible, the writer of Hebrews continues, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. We need better. We need a better sacrifice. That's who Messiah is. He is the better sacrifice. In fact, no, no, take better out. He is the best sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. That's our Messiah. And so when we look at the sacrifices that are being offered, in the Old Testament, we see something that's incomplete and not, not full of what need, is needed to bring us from our sins. But it points forward to a perfect sacrifice on a hill called Mount Calvary where Jesus Christ shed his blood, died for the sins of the world, and then, as if to show off, said, you know what, I don't like this being dead thing. I think I'll rise on the third day. Yeah, being dead is for, like, that's, that's not for me. I tried it. Didn't really like it. No, he, he was dead, and then he ra raised from the dead because he couldn't be held by death. Death could not hold him. It tried. It failed. We have a Messiah who is the perfect sacrifice. By the way, in, in verse 6 in the middle there, there's, a, there's a, a, a clause where he says, but you have given me an open ear. That can be translated in different ways. In fact, the, the writer of Hebrews pulls from the Greek version of the Old Testament and, and it says, a body you have given me. What I think is going on here, I think David is pointing to Messiah and he's saying, look, these sacrifices aren't enough, so you have provided a perfect sacrifice. Because this wasn't enough, you've provided what we needed. And so we have a Messiah who is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But go on. That's not all that this shows us about Messiah. Look in verses four, uh, 40, verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come. 
I hear almost a little bit of Elijah. He's standing in the presence of God, and God says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Elijah says, Here am I. Send me. I almost hear the Messiah waiting for the time and then standing up before the Father and saying, All right, God, it's my time now. Father, the time's come. I'm, I'm going to go do your will. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That language sound familiar? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you? Maybe from Psalm 1, his delight, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist, David, is, is taking these things, and he's, he's, he, it's like folding dough to mix up the yeast in it. He's folding all of these things in because he's seeing all of these connections to Messiah. Messiah is one who delights to do God's will, so much so that listen to what Jesus says. He has just dealt with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. We're going to talk about that tonight when we talk about worship. But John 4, right after that, verse 31, the disciples come to him, urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Just right over their heads. Completely missed it. Jesus says, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. He says, he says, I delight so much in doing your will, God, that it's my food and drink. It's what sustains me. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so by doing God's will, that is enough, Jesus says, to sustain me. Hebrews chapter 12 recaps, verse chapter 11 recaps all of these faithful witnesses throughout history. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and David and all kinds of different individuals. Samuel, the, all kinds of prophets and, and recapping throughout all these things, all of this stuff that, that all of these men have done through faith in God. And then at the beginning of verse 12, he synthesizes it all together and says, therefore, in light of all these who have gone before us, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Yours might say the author and the finisher. That's good too. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising. Jesus looks at the joy of doing the Father's will. And he says, I'll endure the cross. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, he was covered with sweating of blood so that we may be covered with the oil of gladness. We have a Messiah who delights to do the will of the Father. By the way, if you want to rescue someone who's drowning, you, you got to be willing and capable of rescuing them, right? If you can't swim, you can't save someone who's drowning. Thank God he can swim. Thank God that Christ was enough. Thank God that Christ was more than enough. David continues in verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
We have a Messiah who is not only able to completely save us, who is capable of pulling off the rescue. We have a Messiah who doesn't hide the fact that he can save. What good does it do if you're a lifeguard, trained lifeguard, standing on the shore watching someone drown and you don't get in the water and save them? What good is that? What good is it to have the means of rescue available to you if you don't use them? No, we have a Messiah who does use them. We have a Messiah who proclaims it loudly. Luke chapter 4, he's reading. He's, he's in the synagogue. They give him the scroll of Isaiah. It opens up. He's in Isaiah 61. Now, then they didn't have chapter numbers, but now we know that it's Isaiah 61, okay? That, that's, the numbers came a little bit later. But he just starts reading in the appointed place, and this is what he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You hear the proclamation language? Bring good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, watch this, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's proclaiming the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He's proclaiming freedom. But it's not the American freedom. Government has to leave me alone so I can do whatever I want. That's not the kind of freedom he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming freedom from captivity, freedom from sin, freedom from the devastation and ruin that it has on us because we can't save ourselves. We're drowning and we're doomed for all eternity. But now Messiah comes proclaiming good news, preaching, saying, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. I love the fact that it's a year of favor and only a day of vengeance. That's a good thing because I don't, I don't know that I could handle a year of God's vengeance. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He delights so much to do the will of God. He's proclaiming it all across. Anybody who will listen. Now, there's a lot of people who aren't listening. Okay. He preaches to others. There's a lot of people who reject him. He goes somewhere else. There's a lot of faithful believers, believers who do not believe in him. Even though the evidence is all before them. Even though they should have seen the signs of the times. Even though they should have known who it was standing before them, they didn't. They closed their eyes. They, they, they ensconced their hearts in stone so that they would not hear and would not see. So he preaches to others. He finds faith out of a Syrophoenician woman when there's none to be found in Israel. He proclaims the good news. In fact, once he gets that, he reads that portion of Isaiah, he rolls back up the scroll. He gives it to the attendant. He sits down and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hand. Here it is. You know what the next verse said? They were astounded. Couldn't believe what he was saying. In Luke 4, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. They wanted him to stay. Jesus knew he had to go because he had a mission. Watch. For I was sent for this purpose. He didn't come just to die. People, some people say he came to die. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. But he came to proclaim, then die, then rise, and then be proclaimed. 
He did more than just coming to die. He came to proclaim the gospel before he died. Matthew chapter 11, some disciples of John come to him. They're asking, John, John's really not too sure about this. He's imprisoned and he says, is it really him? Are you really the one? Now he had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had prophesied and preached. Uh, uh, in fact, Jesus says there's no greater prophet than John. So if anyone ever asks you who was the greatest uh, Old Testament prophet, it's John. There's no other prophet. No, Jesus says that himself. And yet even he was questioning. Even he was wondering. Even he was curious. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. Maybe I was mistaken. Send some disciples. Maybe, maybe they were the ones questioning. And John was saying, well, why don't you go ask him yourself? But in either case, here they are. They ask him, are you really the one? John, John sent us to ask, are you really the one? You know what he says? He says, go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. You just tell them what you're seeing. You see, Messiah, Messiah isn't just able to say. He does say. All who are willing. In fact, what Psalm 40 points us to, as we read it in the context of all of Scripture, Psalm 40 really points us to is that the Messiah is God's eternal, sufficient means of rescuing us from our sin. He rescues us permanently. He rescues us capably. He rescues us completely. He rescues us from every, every sin. Oh, I'm so worried because I keep messing up, and if I keep messing up, then God's just going to not... No, there's none of that. There's no reason to fear. Oh, well, you know, you know, yeah, Jesus is great and all, but you know, this is pretty good too, and there's that over there, and maybe, maybe I ought to just kind of, you know, let's just get as much as we can just to be on the safe side. No, Messiah is all you need. It's everything. There's no need to go looking for another. There's no need when he grabs a hold of you, drowning in, in the depths of your sin. When he grabs a hold of you and pours you to shore, there's no need to look up and say, who's going to rescue me? You've been rescued. So child of God, if you know Messiah, if you, have, if you have trusted Him with not only your eternity future, but with your life today, if you put all of your trust in Him, then you need not look anywhere else because He is enough. But if you haven't trusted, you need to know He is enough. Nobody questions the lifeguard. Where did you learn how to swim? How do you know that flotation device is going to work? That swimsuit looks great. Can I have one? Nobody's asking questions when they're getting rescued. No, they're dying. And when you see that you need a Savior, when you see that you are a slave to sin and it is destroying you, when you see that firsthand, the only thing you can do is cry out to God for deliverance. I said Psalm 40 was a psalm of petition. You know what he does in the last verses after verse 10? He starts asking God. He says, God, I need your help. From David's perspective, his iniquities have created his crisis. See that in verse 12. Mine iniquities have overtaken me. It says at one point they're over in my head. I, I, I can't see. Messiah can't say my iniquities have overtaken me. That's, that's probably the key difference between David and Messiah in the song. But Messiah can say your iniquities have overtaken him. My iniquities have overtaken him. But yet he lives even though he was overcome, even though he was endangered and even killed, he lives today and forevermore. Not just in our hearts, in reality. The only thing left is to trust him. I can't, I can't, I can't make it. 
complicated. It's not. It's hard. It's not complicated. It's hard to trust him. It's hard to put everything on him. But it's not complicated. He can handle it. Trust me. From experience, I know. He can handle it. We're weak. We're easily broken. Terrible, terrible swimmers. We're prone to destruction. And it's us that destroys us. It's, it's, it's not anyone else. It's not somebody else's fault in Washington or in Montgomery. or It's not someone else that we work with or a boss that we just can't stand or employees that drive us nuts. It's not their fault. It's our fault. So the only thing we can do is to trust Him. Trust Him with everything. 